today's case is another sad one, but I have to tell you, this is so interesting. It is a mystery beyond belief. I feel like maybe that's a bit silly to say on a true crime channel, but it's one of those ones with a lot of questions and not very many answers. So let's get started. Today we're going to be talking about Andy Puglisi. I want to preface this that there is some conflicting information online on this case. My main source is from the documentary, Have You Seen Andy?, which I watched on HBO Max. And um, these are direct people involved, the mom. I feel like that was a better source than what I found online. But I highly recommend that you guys check it out. It is very well done and it has a lot of additional information that I just could not put on the channel because, you know, I'll get flagged and the video will get taken down. But there is a lot of information on there. But anyways, I keep talking, but let's get started. A little bit of background on Andy and the home that he grew up in. Andy was born Angelo Puglisi on September 2nd, 1965 in Lawrence, Massachusetts. His mother, Faith, grew up in a troubled home with a difficult father. She said that he was never violent towards her mother or the children, but, but he was very difficult to be around and often got in heated arguments with her mother. This seems like a just not nice atmosphere at home. So that led Faith to spend a lot of time outside of the home. And it was on one of those days that she met Angelo Puglisi Sr., which obviously is the father of Andy. Angelo was handsome and he was charming, the kind of man that was going to get Faith into trouble, you know, that bad boy type. But what really got Faith's motor running was that Angelo had a car. Faith was only 14, 15 years old at the time. So at that age, in a difficult home life, Angelo and his car meant everything to her. And it was his car that gave him that extra edge in Faith's eyes because she knew it was a way that she could get out of having to live in a house that she didn't want to be living in. So in 1965, when Faith was only 15, years old and Angelo's age was 19, they were married. Could you imagine marrying off your 15-year-old daughter? I know it was a difficult time, but 15? She couldn't even get a driver's license to drive that car that gave her sparkles in her eyes. She was so young. And as you can see, we're really off to a pretty interesting start. When Faith describes the main reason she got married, quote, desperately wanting to get away, unquote, you know, from their parents, it's not usually a good sign for a lasting marriage. So things were good between the very young couple for a while, but shortly after Andy was born, and in Faith's own words, quote, it was like flicking a light switch, unquote. Things went from hot to cold, from everything being fine to the couple absolutely hating each other's guts from one minute to the next, just up and down, on and off for years, and then somehow things got worse. 
Angelo later admitted that he was a workaholic and he should have been more invested in his home life and his relationship with his wife. But he also blamed her for some of the reasons why things didn't work out between them as well. He said that Faith created a horrible and unsafe environment at home, especially for the children. Like most of us do unconsciously, we carry the very things we hated about our home lives with our parents into our homes as adults and parents and don't even realize it's happening. I mean, we shouldn't be too surprised by this outcome. She was still a kid herself and that's not an excuse just more like an observation. Angelo was still a kid too, so there's just not many ways I could see this working out well for anyone involved. It wasn't just things at home weren't good, it was also that Faith was having an affair, not with just one, but two other men. And eventually in 1975, both of the parents had had enough and they ended the relationship and got a divorce. Faith also admits to having affairs. In fact, she continued both of them throughout the divorce and after, but she wasn't quite finished with the two yet. She described the men in her life between 1974 and 1976 as a swinging door, that one came in and one left. And for Faith, it didn't really matter. What I have to say to this is to get your groove on, girl. You do you if that makes you happy. If you are a consenting adult and protecting yourself and your kids aren't involved and around it and you're happy, then do what you want. But that is rarely the case. There is usually more to the story because what she also said is that she wasn't really interested in a relationship. What she really wanted was not the pleasure side of it, but rather a house full of children. She would go on to have five children. The men could come and go whenever, but it was the children that she wanted. And I think it's how she explains that feeling that one of the things about this case that just breaks my heart the most. She craved that unconditional bond with another. Faith would say that she wanted someone, someone who would really love her. I don't think it is unnatural for someone to want a lot of children, but in this case, the reasoning seems to be a bit off. Being a single mom isn't easy. I had only one as a single mom. There were times when I had to choose between the electric bill and getting diapers. It takes a village. I just want to say here that I am telling you not to judge Faith, but because we're doing an investigation into a missing child, the investigators need all the information because nine times out of 10, it's typically someone who knows the child. So there is no judgment here on face decisions. I cannot imagine her pain and embarrassment that all her dirty laundry is laid out to the world to know, but it is important for this case. And she was willing to lay it all out 
for her son. But let me get back to the timeline. In 1976, Angelo was living in Salem. One of her boyfriends Faith had been having an affair with, Jerome Phillips, had moved into the family home when Andy, our victim, was nine years old. A little bit about Andy as a person. He grew up in the projects of Lawrence, Massachusetts, which was considered the most poverty city in the country at the time. That being said, everyone in the community felt like it was the best place to live. There was always someone to play with, and no matter what was going on in their home life, they knew they had their friends in the community. Where they lived in the projects was right across from a pool, a state pool. They would also say that Andy was a quiet, sweet kid who enjoyed spending time with friends and was a big Red Sox fan, but he was also mildly epileptic, meaning that he'd have to go to the hospital to get treatment when and if he had a seizure. But for the most part, Andy was happy. It was a very hot summer day on August 21st, and the kids were home from school getting ready to spend the day out at the public pool, which was only 100 yards away from their home. Most of the neighborhood kids would spend the day there, and it had a lifeguard staff there, and adults around too. They weren't there to really watch the kids, but more, you know, maintenance the pool and make sure that no one gets hurt, you know, in and out of the pool. When I grew up, we had a public pool in my neighborhood and my mom would drop me and my brother and sister off a lot during the summer and pick us up before dark. At the time, you didn't think that a public pool filled with kids was a predator's playground. This was a time before kids were on milk jugs and the center of missing and exploited children. That didn't exist at the time. It just wasn't something that you thought about at that time, you know, late 70s, early 80s. And Faith must have been expecting the kids would head down there but she had other plans for how she was going to spend her day. When she woke up, she took one look at Jerome and told him he had to get out. Just straight to the point, no coffee or nothing, just, you know, you gotta go. But Faith wasn't heartless. She gave him some time to try to figure out where he was going to move to. Jerome got up and went to the couch where he smoked some green and watched cartoons with Andy. And then at 11.30, Faith made Andy some soup and all the kids put on their swimsuits and headed down to the pool. Faith remembers telling Andy to stay with his brothers and sisters before the, all the kids headed out the door. And it wouldn't take Andy long to meet up with some of his neighborhood friends when he got to the pool. It was summer and the pool was packed, upwards of 200 to 300 kids at a time. And Andy was a very popular, likable kid. He had plenty of friends, and one of those was Melanie Perkins. She hung out with Andy and her brother for a couple of hours until about 2 p.m. when she got hungry and she wanted to leave. She originally asked Andy to walk her home, but Andy said he wanted to stay and, you know, enjoy the pool. 
And she was surprised by this because usually he was the one, if you asked him to do something, he would absolutely do it. And this was unusual for Melanie. Usually she would walk the 200 yards from the pool to her house on her own, but there was just something about this day that didn't quite feel right. And she actually asked her older brother if he would walk her home. Melanie's instincts were not off. We should always trust our instincts. She said goodbye to Andy and watched him go hang out with some of his other friends and then she headed home. Around three o'clock, Andy's brother and sisters all came home looking for something to eat, but Andy stayed back at the pool. At around 3.30, she sends her other son to go back to the pool to grab him and tell him, quote, tell him to get his ass home, he's in trouble, unquote. The brother goes back to the pool and the lifeguard stated he hadn't seen him and there was many kids to keep track of, you know, so now it's about approximately 5 p.m. and the mom started walking around the projects, calling out for Andy and looking for him. Some kids said they saw him over by the stadium. The mom said that there was a playground over there, so she headed over there in hopes that she would find Andy at this playground but she didn't. Andy didn't say anything that would indicate that he was upset or something was going on at the pool and he seemed fine. So by 7 p.m. when he still hadn't shown up, Faith started calling relatives and asking for help and you know she wanted their help to look for him but around 9 or 10 p.m. she reported him missing to the police. She said that she waited because she was sure that he was going to walk through the door at any minute. The detective didn't show up until 3 a.m. It was a different time then, you know, in the 70s, 1976. So this, this response wasn't as strong as it is now. They also went to Melanie's house around 3 or 4 p.m. to see if she knew anything about Andy and where he could be, but Melanie did not have any answers for them. She had left before him. Investigators almost immediately started looking into what could have happened to him. First thinking that the recent divorce between Faith and Angelo had Andy confused and conflicted and possibly he was running away to be with his father, but it didn't take them long to start thinking that there was something else going on and it wasn't anything good. They started to suspect that someone had taken Andy and the first place they looked was at his parents. Investigators strongly suspected that either Faith or Angelo could have kidnapped Andy just to make a point to the other one. And uh, one detective even wrote in his notes, quote, accusations and counter accusations between the mother and the father have only tendered to muddy and already unclear disappearance, unquote. But if they were wrong and Andy had really been kidnapped by someone else, they had to do what they could and they needed time to figure out what was going on. So the next day, the National Guard, sniffer dogs, and scuba divers were all brought in to help search the neighborhood and the surrounding woods and rivers. Family members, volunteers, even CB truckers stopped what they were doing and all began searching the area, but they found nothing. 
There was no trace of Andy, not a piece of clothing, not his towel, nothing. It was like he was plucked off the earth, poof, just gone. Over 2,000 people searched and couldn't find a trace of Andy. And the search was called off after just six days. Faith was devastated that they called it off, but she knew she couldn't fall apart. She had to keep it together so she could push forward and keep focused on finding her son. Even at this point, the police hired psychics to try to find some answers to where Andy was. Again, another time. If you're younger than me, you probably don't remember this, but man, psychics were all the rage. And you know, the 800 numbers call into the psychics. I mean, they still have them, but it seemed like they were really pushing it on commercials and whatever. So anyways, they hired these psychics to try to find some answers to where Andy was. I find this absurd, but some believe strongly in them, especially at the time. They even digged up some areas based on their visions, which was, of course, fruitless. <laughs> the psychic would say that the machinery was blocking his visions when they started digging. Uh-huh. Two weeks later, after Andy went missing, a man named Wayne W. Chapman was arrested in Waterloo, New York. And wait till you hear what he had in his creepy van. He had a blue van that had once been a delivery truck, so plenty of space in the back for him to stash his collection of Polaroids, of undressed children, films of young boys, both just regular home videos and other inappropriate kind of videos. They also found maps of the wooded areas, a fake police badge, a pistol, duct tape, camera equipment, rope, and finally the kicker was a bloody sock that was a child's size. Side note, Andy's mom, Faith, remembers a couple days before he went missing, he brought home a Polaroid picture that was one of many a man had him pose for. They tried to pull a print from it, but by then it was like 20 something years later and it was a dead end for them. It didn't have anything. And I don't think it's a coincidence that he came home with a Polaroid and that man had Polaroids. But it will all make more sense as I tell you more. But back to the van, I don't even want to think about what those walls of that van saw and what Chapman was up to because so far he is a disgusting human. I would like to say right now is when they found Andy or some kind of trace of Andy in that van but I can't believe I'm going to say this. The sock sat in evidence for over 20 years in the crime lab, but the case was reopened. The sock had gone missing. Poof, just like Andy, just gone. Now, in the 70s, they didn't have the testing as they had you know, 20 something years later. So them finding that sock with blood on it, they could only get like a blood type or something like that. But they didn't even do that at the time. But when they tried to reopen it, they were like, we can get some DNA off of this. And it was gone. 
What's more important is that the mom said she believes it was Andy's sock as well. You know, well, she actually believed it was Andy's sister's sock, but he was wearing them. And Chapman was also noticed by six eyewitnesses that say he, or should I say um, that someone that resembled Chapman. When they showed him the picture, they're like, oh yeah, we seen him at the pool. Chapman was talking to Andy the day he went missing, if that was him, but according to the eyewitnesses, it looked like him in the picture. They were going to issue a warrant for him on this, but he was already spending the rest of his life in a um, offender's hospital, so they decided not to. They're like, he's already spending the rest of his life in jail, so we're not gonna open up this uh, case that's really circumstantial. You know, they didn't have any hardcore thing. I mean, they had six eyewitnesses that think they saw him, but they were like, we're not gonna go through this whole trial when he's already sitting in prison. Andy's friends remember seeing a van also that matched Wayne's van around the pool that day. And then Wayne came out and said something that had everybody listening. In custody, Wayne Chapman identified as the man who lured two young boys away from that very pool. And that very pool that Andy was last seen at. And he argued two boys in the woods next to the pool, which I guess they did not let anyone know in the neighborhood. Like, why would they do that? Again, a different time. Everything's a secret and we don't want to scare the community. But Chapman never admitted to having anything to do with Andy. He actually served a sentence for those two boys and he was released because some psychiatrist said that he's been you know, fixed or whatever, and that was in 2019, but he died, luckily, in 2021. <laughs> That's horrible to say, but he was a serious predator, a very serious predator. He had videos where he's videotaping school buses, and I would like to get in there and see, the, it's super creepy. Check out the documentary. It, it, they show these videos and him talking in his voice. It just gives me chills. He just sounds disgusting. From this documentary, I found out about a group called NAMBLA. That stands for North American Man-Boy Love Association. This is a real group. It's a very large group of hundreds of men that want to make it legal that they can have relations with boys. I can't even believe that that's a thing. Hundreds in this group. It started right outside of Lawrence. It, it's just bananas. Sometimes I want to say that ignorance is bliss because I could go without knowing this organization exists because that just makes my stomach hurt. To this very day, Andy has never been found and a lot of people think that it was Wayne Chapman that did something to him, but this is where things take an even darker turn. Andy's friend Melanie, the one who left around 2 p.m. that day and had a bad feeling so she had her brother walk her home, well, she grew up to be a filmmaker and the first thing she did was make a documentary, the very one that I'm talking about, about 
Andy. She said that on the day that she was searching for Andy and it was called off, she made a promise to herself that when she grew up, she was going to find him. She would say, quote, being nine years old and having a childhood friend just vanish into thin air would stay with anyone. And Andy was such a sweet and kind little boy. I had a big crush on him that summer and he disappeared and our whole world changed, unquote. Melanie sat out to keep her promise and she started documenting everything she could find on Andy in, in his investigation. And what she found was well, it made me sick to my stomach. We know that the parents are still suspects in this case, and Faith being a very strong suspect in the beginning, and this was because she was in a biracial relationship. Again, a very different time. This case didn't age well, let me tell you. But in terms of where they rank on the list, they are on the way bottom. And then there's Wayne Chapman, who clearly looks suspicious and he has my vote, but the police and then Melanie in her own investigations found out that there was five known offenders. You know what type I'm talking about, you know, the bad kind, the kid, you know, adult kid, anyways. But there was five at the pool that very day, five. Just think about that for a second. I actually didn't even really want to think about it, but it, you know, it makes sense. A bunch of unsupervised children, it's so scary. The police actually already had someone who may have admitted to being the one who kidnapped Andy. His name was Charles Pierce. He lived in Haven Hill, Massachusetts, and when police brought him in for questioning, he admitted to two abductions, one of them was a girl named Janice Pocket, and the other was an unnamed boy from Lawrence. Charles said that he first took the young boy and assaulted him before he killed him and buried him in the same place he had buried Janice. A bit about Pierce is that he liked his victims not alive when he assaulted them. Neither of the bodies were ever found and Charles died behind bars before Melanie had a chance to interview him. But she thinks that what Charles described doing to the unnamed boy was more than likely exactly what really happened to Andy. She thinks that Andy was either abducted by one or maybe a group of these type of offenders that day and that the body is more than likely buried somewhere close by. She also doesn't put any weight on the theories that Faith and Angelo or even that Faith's boyfriend Jerome who took a lie detector test and was cleared but she doesn't believe that they had anything to do with it. And she would go on to say that she hopes they can all find peace, but she also points out that it's not just the child that disappeared or even the family that was affected when something like this happens, but the whole generation. She says that because of the memory she has of Andy, she changed how she raises her own children. She says that everyone who knew him has. They're more weary and cautious. They don't want 
what happened to him to happen to their own children. And it really created a lot of fear for them. I think she's right. I know she's right, actually. I know that the more true crime videos I do, the more careful I am. You have to be. Maybe you don't want to be, but you have to be. And I just can't believe that there was five offenders there. It just, it just blows my mind. Sorry, I keep coming back to that, but five of them in one pool with all these kids home, you know, playing in the summer, it's just unreal. And can you imagine that there's situations where a kid goes missing and the police have so many places to start from? I mean, who knows what happened to him? He could have gone with any of them. He was a hundred yards from home in the middle of summer with people all around him and somehow he's just gone. This is one of those cases that just doesn't make sense. And as a parent, geez, it, it sticks with you. Watch your kids, guys. That's about all I can say for this one without losing my mind. But what do you guys think? I think Faith has made peace that Andy is no longer with us. Uh, I know her pain still exists. You can see it in her eyes when she speaks. Honestly, it, it breaks my heart. They had a candle um, service at the local church to pay their respects to little Andy. And that was the only service that he had. And that was 20 something years after he went missing. Let's leave a red heart for little Andy and his surviving family and Melanie, who is working so hard to find answers for her friend. This is to honor him and his favorite team, the Red Sox. You guys keep your cases coming. I've been getting some good ones lately, like this one that I'm covering right now. So thanks, I really appreciate it. And I appreciate you guys. Thanks to all my channel members and Patreons who continue to support me. Well, if you guys have made it to the end, you guys are rock stars and I love you to death. But as always, remember, if you see something, say something, and I'll see you in my next one. Bye. Thank you.